Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 16131613 and greetings from Missouri. Yes, I, I told you I was traveling. I'm at a conference and uh, headed home here soon. But uh, it's a chilly, chilly place, but not much chillier than Florida up here this time of year, believe it or not. I think I think we kind of got lucky. There's no, no storm going on here in Missouri. So that's a good thing. Anyway, wow. Are you happy? Are you grateful? Are you grateful you've been listening to the Creating Wealth Show and following this fantastic advice? I hope so, because I am looking at a Bloomberg article right now showing what is happening in San Francisco. Here we come, right back where we started from. Is that how the song goes? I think so. (laughs) Anyway, you don't need me singing to you, but... You should be singing the praises of listening to our great advice. Yes, that would be a good idea because rents are absolutely collapsing in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. It is it is uh, staggering, really staggering. And here is something this is leading to that we have only touched on on the show, haven't gone into great depth here. But you know my old theory that I talked about Oh, 15, 16, 17 years ago, I called it the water theory of real estate. And I likened it to that idea that uh, water seeks its own level. Water seeks its own level. We've all heard that old saying. And the idea that if you were to spill or intentionally pour out a glass of water and, and say you were to do that on the ground, what would the water do? Well, water guided by gravity seeks the lowest point. Water seeks the lowest point. It also disperses, right? It's more concentrated in the vessel, in the glass, but when it hits the ground, it disperses. Sometimes it'll disperse in one sort of directed direction, for lack of a better word, a directed direction. Oh, very poetic, I know. (laughs) What a wordsmith. And sometimes, but mostly, if depending on the lay of the land, it will disperse in many directions. But ultimately, it will always seek the lowest level. Well, something very interesting is happening in America and to a lesser degree around the world. And what is that? As tech people are leaving, fleeing, not leaving, fleeing San Francisco, as financial people are not leaving, but fleeing New York City, and those aren't just financial people, of course, 
well, there's a big contingent of financial people in San Francisco, do, what are we saying? They're also advertising people and fashion people and all sorts of things, you know, leaving New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles. I, I might on the live stream, you know what I really want to do on the live stream? Tell me if you want to do this with me. What I'd really like to do is sit down with you and watch TV. <laughs> Not exactly, but I'd like to sit down with you and watch several videos and share ideas that come out of those videos because this is what I spend a lot of time doing to uh, provide you with fantastic information, if I must say so myself. <laughs> I know you're sick of this blustery hyperbole here. I will stop. I promise I will stop. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that is happening with the mass migration, with the Grapes of Wrath 2020. Of course, a wealth transfer. Money is fleeing to suburbia, to suburban markets around the country, and to a lesser degree around the world. Maybe the only reason it's fleeing to a lesser degree around the world than it is in America is because, of course, America is very specifically known for suburbia. That's the American concept. Uh, why is that? Of course, it's the post-World War II baby boom generation. It's Levittown. If you haven't heard of Levittown, look it up on DuckDuckGo. It's also the automobile, America's love affair with the automobile. Uh, that all made suburbia possible. So we see this wealth transfer, we see this money fleeing to suburbia in America especially, uh, more so than any other country. And then we also see it even moving to rural markets, amazingly. But that's not as big a deal as the suburban movement. So we have this suburban mass migration that I predicted back in February. I was the only one talking about it back then, very early. I was making that prediction that it would happen, and it's certainly come true. It's no surprise to anybody now. Talking about it is becoming, frankly, old news. It's kind of boring. But there's another thing that's happening with, with that. And what is happening is, let's look back at that water theory. Water seeks the lowest point. And as water seeks the lowest point, as money goes to less expensive markets and the wealth transfer happens, leaving the expensive urbanized markets, even expensive suburban markets like Southern California, where I'm from. And it goes to other places that are just have a much lower cost of living. They are much more landlord friendly. They are much more business friendly. And frankly, they're just better places to live. And people can really, really get ahead. You know, I noticed that so much myself. When I left Southern California in 2011, nine years ago, and I moved to Arizona, I just couldn't believe how my standard of living improved and how I was able to create so much more wealth. Because number one, when I crossed that state border, when I crossed the state line, my state income taxes went down by about 69%. Yes, 13.3% in the Socialist Republic of California. And I believe it was what, 4.6% in Arizona. Don't quote me on that. but. It's close enough for government work, as they say. So that's one thing. But also, everything else was less expensive in Arizona compared to California. And now, living in a no-income tax state of Florida, it's even better. 
But guess what else happens? As the water seeks the lowest point, and you have this dispersion of wealth, and the money is spent in different jurisdictions, and it's spent in favor of uh, certain governments, uh, meaning, you know, the state of Florida that doesn't charge any income tax, but various municipalities in Florida uh, benefit from all kinds of sales taxes, gas taxes, that I'm not buying in California anymore, or even in Arizona for that matter, right? So that's true. But guess what else is happening? You know, over a weekend, many, many years ago, they built the evil Berlin Wall. The Soviets built the Berlin Wall to uh, basically imprison the East Germans that were left there, right? In, in East Berlin, well, not East Germany, but East Berlin, okay? And so the Berlin Wall was built very, very quickly. Why was the Berlin Wall built? Let's remember our history here. It was built because there was a brain drain. As people were fleeing communism, uh, many of them understood, it took action, and knew that communism would not be the right form of government to live under. It would be tyrannical, and of course it was. No surprise there. So there was a brain drain, and uh, they decided to erect the Berlin Wall to force people to stay in and make it impossible for them to leave. And it was an evil, ugly, terrible part of history. Well, many years ago, I predicted that California would build an economic Berlin Wall. And by golly, that prediction has come true. Uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different plans for them to do that. I've shared some of them with you on the show, the, the wealth tax and, and you know, even, even ideas that would go back to uh, whether or not you went to college in California. So if you went to college in California, maybe a couple of decades ago, maybe three decades ago even, the state of California would try to claw back your money, even though you left the state a long time ago, saying that part of the reason your earning power was as high as it is, is because you went to UC Berkeley or UCLA or, you know, some California school, right? I, I mean, it, it's absolutely insane what they're trying to do. It's scary. But what am I getting to? Forget about that. Forget about the economic Berlin Wall I predicted uh, over a decade ago that's absolutely coming true. Forget about all of that. What about the brain drain? Knowledge is power, as the old saying goes. Remember I've talked to you before about Alvin Toffler's great book called Power Shift, where the three forms of power throughout history, the ability to inflict violence, the ability to manipulate and use capital, and the ability to manipulate and use information. Well, information and knowledge are not exactly the same thing, but they're closely related, right? So we've got this brain drain leaving all of these high-tax, urban, high-priced, business-unfriendly, landlord-unfriendly places, uh, high level of government intrusion, et cetera, et cetera. People are fleeing those places. And COVID, they were doing it before COVID, but COVID has definitely accelerated the migration. We all know that by now, not a surprise. But how does this affect, as these people scatter all around the country, as they scatter to, uh, you know, Texas, Nevada, 
Florida, and I'm not just talking about Californians, I'm talking about New Yorkers, I'm talking about people from Massachusetts, you know, especially Boston, right? Uh, so uh, they're, they're scattering from all these places and they are moving to the desirable places. Well, as they're doing this, what happens to the population there? The population becomes sprinkled with high earning power, highly educated, highly ambitious people are now sprinkled in amongst the people that were already there. And what does this do? Well, they spend their money into these new jurisdictions. They spread their knowledge into these new jurisdictions. So if we look as it is or was a year ago and before that, New York had a monopoly on all of the financial brain power. Now, Charlotte, North Carolina had a decent amount of that. San Francisco had a decent amount of it too. Uh, well, Charlotte's getting more of it, right? Because that's a, a banking center. It's the number two banking capital of America. And so we see that this knowledge is spreading. And I say that is a very democratic thing. It is a very wonderful thing because knowledge will not be the sole province of these few places anymore. It will spread, just like Gutenberg inventing the printing press. It allowed knowledge to spread the fact that you could print things and distribute them. And people had a much greater interest in learning to read and becoming literate after Gutenberg invented the printing press, right? So very, very powerful stuff. And we are now seeing this migration of not only capital, this wealth transfer, but we're also seeing the migration of knowledge. And that is going to lift up other people in these other places that these very highly educated knowledge workers are moving to. Now, it's not that those places didn't already have a decent amount of people like that. Of course they did. But there's more of them moving in there, and they will be their neighbors. They will be having dinner together. They will be doing, you know, things together. They will form new friendships. And this will just increase the power of humanity. It's a great thing. It's very democratic. Instead of all these people being clustered in these small, small areas like Silicon Valley or New York City or Manhattan, New York, whatever, right? They're now spreading around and the knowledge and the wealth is spreading with them. So there you go. You don't have to have a uh, redistribution of wealth through Biden-Harris communism, okay? Which sadly might happen, <laughs> let's hope not. You're having it here happen naturally with the migration as people are fleeing these, these oppressive areas. I think we're going to see a lot more effect of this and I think I, it's very early this is just something I'm talking about now. Note that I'm talking about it now. And I think people will be talking about it in the months and years to come more and more. So mark my words, it's happening, folks. And uh, it's a great thing. Okay, so today our guest, we are having Charles Goyette, a returning guest to the show. We had the pleasure of having him speak at our Phoenix 
Venture Alliance Mastermind years ago. He came along with Ken McElroy and uh, spoke to us in person in our small group setting, and he was just awesome. He's a he's like a financial historian, and he is talking about his latest book, you know, about gold and the gold standard and gold as a measuring stick. And again, as you well know, I'm not a gold bug. However, I do think gold is a good litmus test. It's a good measuring stick, and so let's uh, hear from. Charles Goyette, right now. It's my pleasure to welcome Charles Goyette back to the show. He is the author of the new book, The Last Gold Rush Ever. (laughs) Seven (laughs) Reasons for the Runaway Gold Market and How You Can Profit from It. He is a uh, Hey, uh, I'd call you an economic historian. Is that a fair name, Charles? Welcome back. Well, it it suits me. I'm pleased to be called that. It doesn't hurt my feelings. (laughs) Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we are living in really just amazing times right now. I mean, just amazing times. The world feels like it is falling apart. You know, I, I thought of something today. I was thinking instead of social distancing, maybe we should have socialist distancing. (laughs) (laughs) That would be nice. And maybe we could do more than six feet. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Like uh, 6,000 feet would be 6,000 miles would be better. But yeah, so just give us your overall take of the world today. You know, the last time I saw you was maybe three, maybe even four years ago. You spoke at one of our events in Phoenix for my mastermind group. We really thank you for coming out. Everybody really enjoyed uh, hearing from you. And, And you've been on the show before, but not for a while and a lot has certainly changed. It certainly has changed. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book in 2008 or nine called uh, The Dollar Meltdown. And I ran through a whole lot of monetary and economic precedents and stuff. And I said, now the recommendations in this book are only good for this year, maybe <laughs> next year and the year after. Right. But all of the things that I've described in here, all of these things are precedents and economic lessons that I'd like you to learn. And you can call upon them when you need them at some future date down the road. And that was actually, it turned out to be a very good call, Jason, because the uh, the calls that I made in 2008 were for gold to go up and silver to go up. And boy, did they ever for the next three years. So it was right on the money. But uh, the important thing was that uh, people were advised to take uh, advantage of, uh, of the book to learn the lessons of economic uh, history in case they repeat. Well, here they are now. And all the things that I wandered through back then, if the uh, if, uh, it's time now to call on them and look at them because this is, it sounds it sounds kind of crazy, but in many ways, this is an end game. And so the name of this book, The Last Gold Rush Ever, it's not about prospecting, it's not about mining, but it is about the last gold rush out of the US dollar as it's presently configured. And uh, you know, the uh, uh, we've, we've had in the last less than 100 years, we've had three versions of the US dollar. We had the gold dollar until the 1930s in which uh, anybody could take a $20 gold piece to the bank and get a $20 bill or more likely a $20 bill for a $20 gold piece. But it was the gold dollar. The dollar was, as they said, good as gold. And uh, the uh, paper money was only a warehouse receipt for the gold that was held at the treasury at the bank. It could be called upon any time. After that, we had the gold exchange dollar. And it didn't do any good to be an American and want to exchange your dollars for gold because it was illegal for you to own. But if you were a foreigner, if you were the Bank of England or a foreign institution, you could line up and exchange your dollars, which 
you had been promised by President Nixon to always be redeemable in gold. And uh, that promise was broken. You know what it was like? It was like a, our country was like a, a check kiter. Our country was like somebody writing bad checks on an account that they knew they didn't have enough deposits. Now, to now a lot of people won't even understand that metaphor because they're too young. But check kiting is this idea that someone would write, a, you know, back in the old days when checks used to take a while to clear, you could sort of live this fake life. Now people do it on credit rather than checks, right? Uh, sure, they run out, they run, they run a charge on their MasterCard to pay their visa and then their right. visa to pay their. And that's their essentially the same, idea. Yeah, so, it's the same so thing. check kiting, you'd, you'd write a check that didn't have any money behind it and mm -hmm. then before that check cashed maybe you got a seven day float you'd write another check from another account to back up right. that check and it was just so what you're saying is that the government is doing this or and or the federal reserve is doing yeah. it right well the u.s government was quite clearly doing it and we were even a little bit arrogant about it john conley was the treasury secretary back in that day and he said to the rest of the world, the central bankers of the governments of the world, well, the dollar's our currency, but it's your problem, hardy har har. Mm -hmm. And we could get away with that because, you know, we were the global hegemon at the time. And, we, you know, we had the dollar reserve currency of uh, the world at the time and so on. But in any event, we were, we were frankly busted for issuing more checks than we had money to cover. We had more paper claims for gold than we had gold. And so Nixon broke the last tie of the dollar to gold in 1971. And since then we're on the third dollar standard, which is just the plain dollar standard. There's no pretense that it's backed by anything. There's no statutory uh, regulation that uh, controls how many are issued and so on. And so, you know, other countries have done worse. I mean, Brazil went through the nineties. I think they went through five or six currencies, but in the last 80 years or so, we are on uh, basically the third currency. All of them in succession failed and this one is breaking down now. Okay, so Charles, look at the thing I love about talking to you is that you're a historian and history provides context. And so, you know, didn't people say this in 1975? Didn't they even say it back in 1933? You know, that was a big deal in 1933, of course, when, you know, they had the confiscation. You know, didn't they? always say these kinds of things that, oh, this is the end game. I mean, look, you know, I, I look at just the past 20 years. I mean, Peter Schiff has been predicting the end of the world for 20 years, right? Uh, Howard Ruff was predicting it in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and it never happened, right? You know, the, the thing that just, I think, is hard to comprehend when we're in it is that can't they just keep kicking this can down the road indefinitely? Jason, this is why I like speaking with you, because you gave me such a softball. I'm so grateful for it. <laughs> hey, hey, <laughs> but it's the, it's the important question. Listen, I'll tell you something. You are not Joe Biden in a presidential debate. So <laughs> I'm not giving you a softball. <laughs> Listen, it, it, it is true that, look, there have been gold bull markets in the past, and there was one in the United States that topped out. The, the gold price had been suppressed or controlled by the government for many years. So there was a gold bull market. And uh, when they took off the lid, they took the lid off the pressure cooker and gold went, went up. The gold went uh, in a huge bull market uh, in 1980, topped out 1980. There was another gold bull market that topped out in 2011, made kind of a double top uh, the next year. All of these are what we call secular gold markets. And all bull markets in gold are driven by two things. They're driven by by like national debt, irresponsible domestic economic policies of indebtedness, and by 
central bank or currency issuing authority irresponsibility. So by, let's say by money printing, derivative by debt and money printing. And all of these episodes here and uh, overseas have been driven by things like that. What's going on in Venezuela, the destruction of the currency there, of course, the same thing. Debt, money, spending money they don't have, money printing that's not backed by anything. All of these are secular bull markets, but there is something quite, quite different about this one, which is why we call it the last bull bull market ever. This is a, a, a unique, th this is a crossroad of history. And gold always shows up in the crossroads of history. So we're at a crossroads of history. And by that, I mean, everything economic happens at once. So best example I could give, for example, is uh, uh, when an arson investigator comes to see what's the problem, why did the house or the building burn down? He looks for the natural fuel. He looks for the fiberboard or he looks for the wood framing and so on that uh, allowed the structure to burn. But he also looks for the accelerants that were used to spread the fire in the uh, arson's diabolical plan. So in this case, we have all of the infrastructure that all bull markets always have, but we have them in, in a monstrous quantity of debt and of money printing. Unprecedented. Didn't, didn't they think Strange the quantity was monstrous before, of though? Of course. Of yeah. course. And it relative, relatively speaking was. Uh, right. We can put some numbers on this later and show you that, that uh, this is far beyond, far so, beyond. Uh, what I completely agree that this is absolutely terms. astronomical. We are we are dealing with numbers we never thought we'd see. Right. Absolutely. But, but they thought that when the numbers were so much lower, they seemed really high. I mean, you look at old speeches like, you know, with Reagan, for example, mm -hmm. right? And he's talking about the deficit and he's talking like such small numbers, he doesn't even talk in trillions. <laughs> well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a better idea than that. We had uh, the first trillion dollar national debt. I don't mean just the one year deficit of a trillion dollars, but the first trillion dollar national debt was in Reagan's first term. And you can look at me and see that my hair is, yeah. I guess, kind of, you know, that I was around back then. And I remember carrying petitions yep. that a lot of us were carrying then, no, you know, there no trillion dollar national debt. Right. Well, it broke a trillion dollars uh, when Reagan was president. So we had gone through, you know, 200 plus years of American history and we fought two world wars, we'd opened the West. You know, we had uh, we had uh, fought in Vietnam and and uh, we bought Alaska and we bought the Louisiana Purchase you, you, and all you know, of that. And we, you know what we, we did this time, Charles? <laughs> we, paid, we paid to fund the welfare state. Yes. Aren't you proud of us? Yes. So what do we have to show for it now? Yeah. <laughs> we have a exactly bunch of right. dependent people that vote for Democrats. That's what we have. So this year we ran uh, uh, in the fiscal year that just ended at the end of October. We ran. Not the national debt. The gross national debt hit a trillion when Reagan was president. Now, just the one-year deficit that adds up with all the debts that have gone before, the one-year deficit was over $3 trillion. Right. Just, they just finished the month of October counting, the first year of the new, the first month of the new fiscal year. I think it was about, came in about un, unparalleled, about uh, just under $300 billion for the month. So these numbers are astronomical, but... Yep. What I'm, what I think it's important for people to understand is that this is a, a malevolent convergence of a whole lot of things happening at once. So there are all these additional accelerants in addition to the debt and the wholesale money printing. We have, uh, um, well, you would certainly know about this, and you've alluded to it a couple of times. We have a a, a rampant kind of a runaway um, move towards socialism in this country. Right. 
And that undermines the productive capacity of the country. Sure. And that takes capital from productive uses. And this is what you alluded to. You know, we, we bought uh, the Louisiana Purchase and we bought Alaska and so on with uh, state spending back in that day. But today we spend it all on consumption on uh, the welfare state. So, yeah. But we have a newfound huge popularity of uh, socialism that we have not had before in this country coming at the exact wrong time when we can least, uh, least afford it. So that's one of the accelerants we talk about in the last gold bull market ever. And there are a number of others. I'm watching uh, the secretary of the state of state, Mike Pompeo, run around the country. And he's trying to get cooperation on national government initiatives of, you know, of uh, restrictions, trade restrictions and uh, embargoes and this, that and the other. And he's meeting with an an unforeseen, unexperienced by Americans in the in modern times resistance from all over the world. And that's one of the other accelerants that we're facing is a, a, a breakdown of America's global hegemony. America's global economic might has powered our diplomatic hegemony. And as our economic might subsides, our, uh, our ability to control events of the world is subsiding as well. So, so we have so for all of these accelerants. To, for our economic might to subside, mm -hmm. that means it's essentially has to be replaced with some other economic might, right? Right. Or we can now, stay the same and others can grow. Now, I assume you're going to say China is the one to take Good the lead, example. Right? Sure. Okay. Good example. But, you know, I just don't think so. Because mm -hmm. I think I think China is 10, maybe 15 years away from a giant demographic problem. I think they have, they are on the verge of major civil unrest. As are you know, we. Well, fair enough, but their civil unrest has a completely different flavor than ours, right? I, I mean, look, I, I agree with you. You're absolutely yeah. right about that. You know, I, I think we're going to see a real secession movement in the country. I think uh, it probably kind of needs to happen. I hate to say that, but I just don't see how these two sides of the political aisle can coexist. I really don't. Yeah, I'm, I, and I agree with you about that. But back to China, I actually agree with your point there. They have a the leadership of the Communist Party has a very tricky problem. They have to keep those people employed that they have urbanized over the last couple of generations. And the this is what keeps them up at night. You know, what happens if there is a, a, a trade shutdown? What happens if, uh, if, if commerce with China stops? And it actually puts a whole new light. If you look at it, it puts a whole new light on the, the American geopolitical or global military empire. You know, the pretext for the current level of defense spending in this country since the Obama pivot is, well, we have to keep the sea lanes open in China. That's mm -hmm. a number one military objective now. Right. But China, China, who wants to close the sea lanes? Mm -hmm. China can't afford it yeah. with their, you know, ever since Deng Xiaoping, it has been a necessity that they would grow, that they would need more goods coming and going from China. There's no other way. I mean, you could have kept Mao and kept uh, the heel of the boot of the state on the face of a billion people all these years, or with the freeing of their economy, it's a, it's inevitable that uh, trade and commerce would start flowing through the South China Sea. Sure. But 75% of the shipping there, Jason, comes and goes to China. So it is in their interest to keep the trade lanes open, and, and more so even than ours. And if the trade lanes were shut, that's when the civil unrest that you alluded to really becomes frightening for the leadership there. Yeah, no, no question about it. So I, I, I don't, I'm not a China bull. I mean, you know, I was, but I, I just 
don't think China has anywhere near as good a future as some think it does. I just think that the freer society is going to win out. I mean, look at what what happened. I, I think COVID rescued them from the Hong Kong problem. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, don't wear a mask. Oh, now you got to wear a mask. <laughs> you know, like, that was ironic, right? I mean, I don't mean to make light of that because it's a terrible situation, obviously. But I was in Hong Kong right before that unrest broke out. I mean, like the week before, you know, had I stayed a week longer, I would have been in the thick of that. So it's really crazy what's going on there. But um, I I mean, what do we do with all this, Charles? I'm assuming you're saying the future is inflationary, right? Well, I'm certainly saying that the, uh, the future is a different role for the dollar. And it's no longer the dollar reserve. In fact, I'm glad we're speaking about China. That you know, only only a couple of years ago, China was the largest creditor of the United States Treasury, the largest foreign creditor, and it held about uh, about 1.3 trillion dollars worth of uh, U.S. debt. So, at a time of growing indebtedness, we need all the creditors we can get. But this has changed now. And they are de-dollarizing, as is the rest of the world. This has enormous implications for the American people and the American economy. But China has gone from the number one creditor of the United States of foreign nations to number two now. And they are down from $1.3 trillion. They're down to $1 trillion. And the trend is, as they say, your friend, is the trend is very, very self-evident. Russia has done the same thing. Russia at... Uh, probably under $200 billion uh, as the United States creditor. You know, in these days, we need every $200 billion creditor we can get. But Russia had about $200 trillion or $200 billion of uh, United States Treasury instruments that it held. Now, if you look at the Treasury reports, Jason, they put Russia down in the asterisks down with, you know, like uh, Syria and Iraq and Vietnam. Wow. You know, yeah. I mean, they basically they basically have nothing. And what have they done with that money? Mm-hmm. They've moved it. They've moved their central bank reserves to gold, yeah. as has China. So it would be fair to call you a gold bug, wouldn't it? I suppose. I okay. I suppose. Yeah, okay. It doesn't hurt my feelings. Well, what about? And neither does a uh, in an economic historian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good so and and what about what about cryptocurrency and all of this? What about Bitcoin? So I think it's a I think it's a wonderful thing that people are experimenting uh, with Bitcoin and developing uh, alternative currencies. You know, the great economist Hayek said, you know, let all kinds of currencies evolve, get rid of the legal tender laws, and let people settle on the ones that they like. So I think it's right. a good thing, and I'd I'd like to know exactly how things will pan out over the long term with Bitcoin and some of the other cryptos. And I think we should find out experimenting with your money rather than mine. <laughs> so, but I mean, I'd like to know, and I, you know, I wish them well. You know that the Fed has on the drawing board their own kind of Bitcoin wallet, uh, Federal that, Reserve. That's the one that's going to win. You know, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. It'll, that, it'll, it'll win by force. <laughs> of course, which yeah. is which is how you know it's kind of the end game. Nobody has to use force or pass legal tender laws when the currency is of self-evident value. You know, it's just like, right. a, you know, a run on the bank. No, Nobody's ever staged a run on the bank to uh, exchange their gold for dollars. Give me my dollars, you've got to give me my dollars. It's always been the other way around. And it's the same thing with uh, legal tender laws. You know, if they, ha- if they have to use the force of law to keep you using their currency in the face of alternatives, 
then there's probably reason to be suspect of the currency. Absolutely. You know, there, there's a great meme, Charles, that I, I remember I posted on Facebook a few years ago, and it was a picture of riot police with their gear and their shields and their batons and all that stuff. And at the top, it said, socialism, ideas so good, we have to force you to accept them. <laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah. And as Margaret Thatcher said, the problem with socialism is pretty soon you run out of other people's money. Yeah, absolutely. You sure do. So um, you, your advice would be buy gold, right? Yeah, my advice is, is uh, absolutely. My advice is that the present currency system cannot last. And so people that see it in breakdown and they see the convergence of these currency wars in which uh, countries race to the bottom to destroy the purchasing power of the currency, they see the war on cash, which should be a whole conversation by itself. They see all these things uh, uh, going on. These are symptoms of uh, a growing failure of the currency. And so rather than waiting for the stampede, when people line up around the block, I suggest that people take steps to protect themselves now. Right. And it's... Yeah, it's not, uh, you know, I'm not here to tell you how high gold will go next year or uh, or next month, Only, but I am here to tell you quite clearly that the signs are quite evident that the current monetary system uh, is in a state of breakdown. Yeah. So is gold a currency and an insurance policy or is it an investment? There is a well, difference, right? Yeah, it depends on the, on the times. Um, and it depends on how you buy it. You know, people that buy gold shares, which have a, a use and a place in some portfolios, people that buy ETFs have a use and a place in some portfolios are trading it as an investment, but it is not a currency. Here is the sole virtue. Here's the reason that in, in a time of economic transition, in the time of a breakdown, Jason, here's the sole reason that gold stands separate and apart from everything else. It is the only monetary asset in the world that is not somebody else's liability. Right. It doesn't matter who signed the certificate. It doesn't matter you know, if they are audited by honest auditors or dishonored. None of those things matter. Whose face, whose picture is on it? None of those things matter. It doesn't depend on anybody's performance. It doesn't depend on uh, how well the mining, the mining company is administered or whether somebody's embezzling funds. It doesn't depend on whether somebody has uh, rehypothecated or hypothecated the gold in the ETF to someplace else and the title's not clear. All of those things are irrelevant because in a period of crisis, you're holding an asset with gold and silver that is a monetary asset that is not dependent on the promises of counterparties or uh, risks and failures by other parties. Okay, so it does depend though on the two economic drivers as I, I see them, scarcity and utility. Right. And so you've got to have people, I mean, since it's not really an industrial metal, very much like silver or other metals certainly are even more so, you know, it's a monetary metal, right? So people have to keep believing that it's the thing and they certainly have for 5,000 years. So it's got a good mm -hmm. history behind mm -hmm. it, but also it has to depend on scarcity. And, you know, this is not as far fetched as may, some might think, but I mean, you know, we're pretty close Charles to, mining asteroids and discovering all sorts of abundance. And if you even look at oil as an example right here on Earth, you know, in the in the uh, doomsday-ish 70s, and, you know, the, the conservation mentality of Jimmy Carter and, you know, wear a sweater, don't, you know, don't make the house warm because we Moral can't- Moral equivalent of war, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, that whole conversation about peak oil, right? You know, for sure, we thought the world was going to run out of it. 
And then we discovered a new way to access it, and that was fracking. And now it's totally abundant, and it may be being produced abiotically. Nobody knows for sure about that, but certainly there's a lot more of it than we ever thought. Could that happen with gold? I mean, maybe gold isn't as scarce as we think, right? Well, it's very scarce. And uh, despite the fact that most of the gold, perhaps 95, 97% of the gold that's been mined in history is still in human hands. Think about that. Thousands of years of gold production, and it's still in human hands, and yet the value of it keeps going up year after year. But you're right. You know, asteroids uh, may come. People may discover new ways of uh, reclaiming gold from the oceans and stuff. But these are very expensive processes that take a long time to develop. But the potential demand for gold in the face of a, some sort of a remonetization is just uh, it's simply off the charts. I mean, we have, we have enough gold now for everybody to have an ounce. That's not very much. But to your point a moment ago, you said the value of it keeps going up. And I think those are sort of critical words right Uh there. I think those are very important words. So I don't want to compare it to dollars because most economists would. They'd say yield dollars or constant dollars, you know, inflation adjusted dollars. Has the price of gold gone up? Yes, it has, because the dollar is depreciating. Maybe it's not that gold is appreciating. And the funny example is, you know, 5,000 years ago, you could buy a toga and a pair of sandals with an ounce (laughs) of gold. Now you can buy a man's suit and a pair of shoes. Uh Uh, So I don't know, is gold actually going up in value or is it just holding its own as a measuring stick? Yeah, it it holds its own and the currencies that it's measured against rise and fall as well based on their domestic economic uh, fundamentals but note this that the price of gold uh, has hit new all-time highs this year in not just not just in the US dollar but in all the currencies of the world and i don't say just the major currencies but all the currencies of the world it's hit uh, new all-time highs So there is a burgeoning demand for it. I saw today that the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund has got legislation pending so that they can now start owning gold. You know, this is the the fund that uh, they sell their oil and they provide for their national pensions with and so on. They and uh, the movement of central banks into gold with money they used to hold with reserves they used to hold in uh, in dollars. Uh, There is a strange new respect for gold going on all over the world. Old hidebound institutions that never even looked at it. You know, uh, Warren Buffett has made himself uh, kind of notorious for his disdain for gold over the years. But now, you know, he's been this year he has sold bank shares to move money into uh, gold shares. So, you know, there and, and of course, this is to be expected. Because the handwriting is on the wall. It's not just we that see that uh, something is wrong, but, you know, the Treasury has a lot of debt that they've got to fund. They've got a lot of money. They, the demands for resources that the Biden administration will make on the American people are enormous compared oh, to the already enormous. enormous demands today. Hopefully the they'll has to come from somewhere. those demands, but, you know, I, no. <laughs> the likelihood is, yes, even both both sides of the aisle are of spenders. Course. I mean, let's just of course. call it what it is. They're both, everybody's a Keynesian nowadays, um, except Ron Paul. So um, uh, I'd like to close with two areas of interest for you. One is the New World Order, and the other is this more recent talk, maybe from the New World Order, I think that'd be fair to say, about the, the and I'm going to quote the mm-hmm. You, this is not a conspiracy theory. They say it, okay? You know, it's it's just listen to their words, not ours. The Great Reset. So 
what about the new world order and the great reset? Let's wrap it up with some thoughts on that. Those things. Yeah. Well, the new world order is uh, is certainly coming. It's not in a defined form. There are many people that have defined ideas that they would like it, but in the meantime, the old world order is breaking down, and it's breaking down really fast. And there are a lot of people that uh, you know would like to rush from Davos to uh, the legislative halls of the world and get implemented uh, their version of the of the new world order. The real new world order that will manifest after I don't know how much heartbreak and I don't know whether it, it is born in with, a, with the old one ending with a whimper or with a bang, but the new world order is certainly going to be highly decentralized. That is the mega trend of the times. The state always, always fights decentralization, always wants to consolidate power and resources. But the real mega trend, and you can see this going on in uh, in our subtle social lives and social circles is uh, decentralization. So we're in for a conflict, you know, in which the organic order of things, which is, uh, you know, people don't want their schools run by institutions have thousands of miles away. We, we need to have a decentralization of the monetary system, the healthcare system, the, the education system, and many, many other things. And these things will manifest. It's just, you know, the, the old world order is coming apart at, at the scenes. So it's a question only of what will the state do? How far is it willing to uh, exert its authority to insist on its version of a, of a new reset? It's always been, in fact, this is the difference between socialism and communism. The question of oh, socialism, oh, it has friendly face. It doesn't, you know, it's not a boot heel like communism is. Well, the question is, if you have a central plan, you have a central economic plan, what's the good of having a central economic plan if you don't intend to enforce it? And of course, the central economic plan runs into conflict with people's individual plans. So if you're a serious statist, you have to enforce it. And ultimately, it comes down to the point of you know, enforcing it with uh, force, of, force of arms. So that's, these are the choices that are ahead of us. And I, I actually fear that they will end uh, very, very poorly. When the state begins to lose its power, when its power base begins to decay, it thinks that the problem is a lack of military resources. And this is as old as the fall of Rome. I mean, Gibbons yeah. talks about this. You know, the overstretch of the empire is a, court, is a question of the empire saying, well, we're, we're too weak. We're, nobody's following us. Nobody's doing what we say. We need more military resources. And they get those resources at the expense of the domestic economy. Of course. The, yeah. the resilience of which was the source of their might to begin with. So they drain the domestic economy at the expense of uh, the empire. And uh, that's basically where we're headed. And uh, the the currency and the empire are coextensive one with another. The dollar and the American global military or empire are coextensive, and uh, they rose together and they will fall together. And what all of this really relates to is what we've been talking about on the show, which is the Cantillion effect and the just the massive hollowing out of the middle class. It's It's been happening for a long time. It's only going to be an accelerant, as you put mm -hmm. it. All of this will just be an accelerant. You know, the welfare state will increase in size because you got to keep the poor from rising up, right? That's what the government's going to do. They're going to placate. And then the elites who are closest to the money, as Richard Cantillion postulated, will get the, the most of the benefit. They so, get it first. They get yeah, the first they, use of it before it's depreciated. Absolutely. You know, yeah. everybody else is downstream from them. So yeah. Yeah, that's certainly true. Charles, give out your website. So it's charlesgoyette.com, Charles and then Goyette, G-O-Y-E-T-T-E.com. And you can uh, see the book there, a couple of videos about the book and 
a couple of other things of uh, interest. I, I believe that uh, David Stockman, the budget director under the Reagan administration, I believe his, uh, his preface to this book is uh, posted there, and it's very interesting. He says that people that read this book, people that fail to read this book will be surprised at just how hot and how high this conflagration, this this bonfire of calamities is going to burn sure. with the, uh, the in the currency situation, the currency yeah. world. Fascinating stuff. Charles Goyette, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's always great to see you, Jason. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.